Welcome to the Stories or Soul Food podcast with your hosts, Brian Cole and best-selling author, N.D. Wilson. This audio is brought to you by Cannonball Books and Great Homeschool Conventions. Welcome to Stories Our Soul Food. And uh, today, we thought we'd talk about Veggie Tales. Mm-hmm. It's time. It's been requested and, you know, we've mulled on it a while. Yeah, it's one of those things. This is one of those topics where I have relationships. And so, you know, it's just kind of, it's odd. It's kind of, I mean, I have many thoughts on Veggie Tales, and a lot of them are, you know, ill-informed. Because you, haven't, on, on you haven't watched Yeah, I've not Veggie watched Tales. a lot, but it's. On a principial level, and I have experience from childhood, you know, I've experience from back in the day, as opposed to current iterations. Uh, Doug Tenapel, who we've had on the show, he did VeggieTales in the house for Netflix. You know, he oversaw that. So all the new, all the new VeggieTales iteration that exists on the Netflix streaming platform for DreamWorks is something that Doug Tenapel had, former guest, that he did. And it was something I've not seen. So I, I really can't, I can't speak to the VeggieTales on... Right. Netflix. Specifically, we should focus on what happens when you take a Bible story. That's kind of what I wanted to ask. Yeah. And then somebody, another friend, Chris Wall, great producer, was involved in producing a bunch of, a bunch of Edgy Tales pre-10 April. And then back before that, there's Phil and the very origin of Edgy Tales with Big Idea and, and that kind of stuff. So on the one hand, there's things about Veggie Tales that I admire, mostly business model at the outset and different iterations of it the way it created a new brand independent animation production like there's there's a lot of stuff that that i admire but if we're talking about bible story adaptation is probably the best way to categorize the entire discussion right if you're going to tell your kids bible stories which we've encouraged you to do we've encouraged you to tell them without disnification you know we don't we really think it's not it's not a good idea to try to chocolate coat it or to remove the strong flavors, you know, and turn it into the the closest thing to box mac and cheese that you can make it. <laughs> you know, it's right. Taking, what we're looking taking to something do. that isn't box mac and cheese and making it. Yeah. So I'm going to take this amazing, amazingly complex, difficult meal from my children, and I'm going to wreck it. Instead of having them stretch and grow, I'm going to try to aim lower. I'm going to try to reduce it to their level. I have the same big problem whenever. Whenever an illustrator decides in a picture book to patronize the readership by trying to draw like a child or to try to make it feel like it was drawn by a child, it's like, no, you're a talented artist. Like, inspire the kids, like, give them, some, give them, give them something to pursue, to reach for, as opposed to, you know, draw like you were four and had a crayon in your fist. Like, don't, don't do that. It's insulting. The reason why they draw like that is because they haven't matured yet. It's it's not because they prefer it, uh, and it's not because they should prefer it. Yeah, my so, son was complaining about his inability to draw a staghorn beetle. Really, <laughs> was, the three year old wanted to be able to draw yeah. more accurately. So one of my favorite picture books back in the day was Saint George and the Dragon because it was and is so challenging. You know, it's got a lot of text. It's from Spencer's Fairy Queen. It's the drawings. Oh. What's the drawings the are complex. I don't remember the illustrator's name, but it's fantastic. It won the Caldecott. Yeah, we just bought a bunch of her King Arthur stories too. Yeah, she does. Yeah, those are great. 
And so it's big, terrifying dragon. I'll put it in the show notes. It's, I, yeah, it's a it's good one. Big, big, terrifying dragon, blood in the, in the fight between St. George. And a lot of text. They didn't dumb the story. Yeah, and, the, and text heavy. It's an example of a picture book that challenges and inspires. I mean, I spent hours pouring over that, you know, studying the dragon and looking at how it was drawn and trying to draw dragons like that. Yeah. As opposed to insulting me and, and the entire endeavor. Right. By cheapening the art. She did an adaptation of Bearskin that Christy bought for one of the kids, I think for Easter. I can't remember if it was an Easter present, but that kind of thing. She's reducing those tales, or not reducing the tale, we should say, but yeah, drawing so she them has, for she's children. adapting. She's adapting them for kids, and it really challenges them with the illustrations. So I kind of like the action Bible, if we're talking about Bible stories, and there's, there's problems with it, but I like the action Bible because it's, it's more earthy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's, you can, there's a little more sweat. There's a little more sweat and dirt, yeah. you know, in there. Sweat and dirt and blood. But as far as picture Bibles go, and I can just touch this and run on, my strategy was to have a ton of them. So yeah. we just had a ton of different picture Bibles around. And the reason why is because we wanted our kids to all be aware that these are adaptations as opposed to this is the Bible. Right. You know, it's like this is, these are a bunch of different adaptations, a bunch of different takes on scripture. And we tended to prefer to stay Old Testament anyway, just to avoid, you know, like the imaginings of Jesus, which are always inevitably going to come Bible. up short. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it's going to come up short. Every, every rendition of Jesus is going to fail in some way because they're trying to make him, they're trying to project whatever their sense of holiness and piety is onto an image. I also really liked that uh, the Action Bible, when it adapts the text from the Bible, doesn't change it in a way that makes it feel like it's written for children. Something like the yeah. Jesus Storybook Bible adds so much sweetness right. and saccharin yeah. into the text that it becomes. So back, back in the day, way back in the day when I was just getting my start in public publications, which consisted of my dad forcing me to write and edit for the church newsletter, which became Credenda Agenda Magazine later. One of the jokes was about precious moments. Oh yeah. So at the time, precious moments were big. You know, you have these little giant eyed, huge headed, you know, figurines. Stubby fingered. Yeah. A little like adorable, so adorable little figurines of Bible characters. Here, isn't this an adorable little Mary with an adorable little baby and an adorable little Joseph? And it's just disgusting. I mean, it's just wrong. And so at one point, I commissioned an illustration of Samuel hewing Agag to pieces in, in precious moments <laughs> format. <laughs> and so there's the there's the huge noggin with the little X eyes instead of the big eyes, and there's the adorable little Samuel ho- holding his bloody sword and this hewn precious moments figurine. Like it just shows you that you're not engaging with scripture. You're not actually telling the story when you try to neuter it in terms of medium. Now this applies to Veggie Tales because if you want kids to think of Bible stories as historical, as things that actually happened in the world. Maybe don't catechize them with the subconscious assumptions that these characters were vegetables. You know, yeah. just sort of like, okay, here's these characters and they play act, you know, they, they're, they play act these different Bible stories, but it puts the historicity of Bible stories on the level of a talking tomato. And that's something that I, you know, have a problem with. Now, a talking tomato can be done in a clever way. It could be great. Like I said, I haven't seen the new ones. I haven't watched a Veggie Tale since, you know, I was probably mid-teens when I watched some last. Uh, but the ones I watched then, I hated. I hated in the same way that I hated Precious Moments. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of, I haven't watched a ton of Veggie Tales either, but I do remember the Battle of Jericho. 
the episode called Josh and the Big Wall. I had to look that up. And it's retold as a story of obedience. But I guess talk about that one. Or or for instance, you have a nephew named Shadrach. Yes, I so, do. So uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny they've re- is the name of that episode. And they've yeah. talked about, you know, handling peer pressure is what the takeaway for that episode yeah. is. But I guess is that and I what hate the Bible all that. About? I hate all that so much. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it as much as I am capable of hating it. Let's flesh that out. <laughs> <laughs> if it could be any more clear what what is that let's take you know shadrach meshach abednego what's yeah. the point of that story is peer pressure the point of that story i guess would be the way to ask it uh, i mean you there's obviously an aspect of that that applies to peer pressure but it's really it is about the fear of the lord before all else i mean it's fear yeah. fear god and no man so under the category of no man you can slot you know you can slot your peers sure (laughs) but um it's a little bit bigger and it actually now in our current climate and our current political climate and everything else that's been going on and all the mayhem people need kids need a lot more backbone they need a they need a lot more bone strength to not just stand up to peers but to stand up to tyrants to stand up to false pieties that wield a, a really really iron scepter yeah. <laughs> you know so i think people hear you saying stand up to tyrants and think you're immediately exaggerating right but, but you're not no no so i mean it's whatever you think of mask policies right you could whatever you think of the science of masks it is ir- that's irrelevant to the actual discussion what's happening of do small localized civic authorities have jurisdiction over your face and do they that is the question that's, that's I don't, you can't phrase it any other way so we're more than they, a yeah. year into this do they thing. have jurisdiction over your face do they have jurisdiction over your face when you go to worship god do they have jurisdiction over your face your dress code for worship do do they have that do they have that authority or not and the answer is of course they do not so stop acting like they do they're acting like they have that authority they do not have the authority to do that so this all ties into reading the story in which you currently live. So, if you've been uh, catechized on tales of bravery in cucumbers, it didn't quite prepare you for this moment. <laughs> you know, it's like this is this is not you quite... were you were ready for everybody to be mean to the tomato at the lunch table, but you were yeah, not you were ready. not ready for people to call you an effing murderer in the parking lot. Yeah, uh, or in know. the grocery store to yeah. just shout you down. Yeah, it's like you're you're not you're not ready for that. So you weren't you you know you weren't prepared. So it's really interesting to think that you have to be we have to be feeding our kids and ourselves our imaginations and our souls for the moments in which we live. So, like I said, there's plenty of people who debate the science of masks, right? Yeah, and whatever, let them. I don't have to be an expert. I don't have to be a scientist to understand authority and jurisdiction and so do does a mayor does a mayor for example in a, of a tiny town a hypothetical town in northern idaho does he have northern iowa in northern iowa does he have authority over my face a healthy person like do we want to go down the road where we mandate whatever might be better for you you know it's like this is are we are we going to make it illegal to not wear you know not wear a sweater when it's under 50 degrees like do we want 
civic authorities to have that because kind of for sure that would not. be connected to staying healthier less yeah. sickness less yeah so you know we've problems. all seen we've all seen on tv college kids who are shirtless and like really low temperatures at a football game i'll tell you a secret that's not healthy <laughs> like that's they're not making a healthy choice it's not even a very good secret <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're it's they're not making a healthy choice so i think that for your your the moments that your kids have coming specifically the moments that you have coming they need stories of actual courage like real courage real heartbreak real suffering Mm-hmm. That's what they need to be fed with. They don't need to be fed a bait and switch Flintstone vitamin. Yeah. You know, that that makes it about somebody being rude about the kind of lunch your mom packed you. <laughs> you know, it's like right. to preschool. That's that's not what they need. They, they need don't stories need, of Samson. Yeah. It's like uh, Daniel Tiger, which of course has been a perennial on on kids' shows for TV, is just that sort of reduction of simple life lessons, supposed life lessons. But I guess taking it back to VeggieTales, I think one of the, could you describe it in terms of morals versus moralism? And when you reduce something yeah. that's real down to a cucumber. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a huge amount of philosophy actually to do yeah. around this. We're thinking about reduction, like the reduction to an essence. Like we have the instinct to try to reduce to an essence, which is a fundamentally uh, Hellenistic way to go about things. So we take a story and we say, well, we want to find the, find the beating heart of the story, the thing that matters about the story most. Yeah. What's the, if our kids can take away one thing, what should it be? And it's whatever for a parent, it's you're, we're thinking in terms of whatever will make them slightly better behaved tomorrow or this afternoon. Right. You know, we want them to have a little lesson that will help them at nap time today. <laughs> yeah. For our sakes. And so we trivialize stuff significantly. We, we aren't thinking about getting them strong muscles and strong bones and strong imaginations. We're thinking about how to make them more docile, how to, how to give them little lessons that will make them, you know, better. Obey when the, when the tiny governor says. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yikes. So, I mean, it's one of those things, are we going to, is there, I don't know, is there, is there a veggie tale story set in, set in an elementary school where a kid has a little cucumber, has its eyes burned out and it ends up collapsing the whole cafeteria and killing all the other vegetables? <laughs> <laughs> like I don't think there is. <laughs> I don't think there is. You know, is there Rahab the prostitute and Josh in the big wall? Is is she there turning tricks? You know, don't think so. Doubt it. You yeah, know, but I, she's the yeah. actual. She's the, here's the weird part. She's one of the most important characters of that story. She's the one who gets the callbacks later in the lineage of the Messiah. So how come she gets trimmed out of the story? Well, because that part was. Was tacky, not easily. That was not tacky. easy, easily reducible to vegetables. Or, or when you reduce the story of David to Dave and the giant pickle and right. turn it into a story of uh, self-esteem, yeah, that seems like one of the saddest things you could do and one of the bravest moments in history. Right? Or yeah, exactly. Most faithful moments in history. Right. So David shows up and he's angry at everybody else for not having already taken care of this, for having so little faith. It's not self-esteem at all. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's a completely different thing. And, and he didn't have to come to this self-aware thing where he thought, I can do this. Yep. And then, then also you have a, um, a, one of the great moments of trash talking in all of scripture. Oh, yeah. When he uh, tells Goliath, I will smite thine head from thee. Oh, he's going to feed, feed his carcass to the birds. And the beasts. Yes, the birds and the beasts. And I actually, I remember telling my kids... <laughs> Part of this story, I was like, he's going to feed him to the birds. He's going to feed him all to the birds. It's like, so what does that mean? Like, well, God wanted him pooped all over the land. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like that's what happened to Goliath. Well, he was on all those ancient windshields, <laughs> just spattered. The chariots are covered yes, with Goliath. He was spattered. It's like it's one of those things. This happened in the real world. This happened, and the story doesn't stop. You know, like the story keeps it keeps going, it keeps running. Same thing. I think I mentioned before when I told my toddlers the story of Samson. I told the story about him losing his eyes. I told the story about him killing all the Philistines in the end of his life and dying. But then I would ask him, "Does is Samson blind now?" Mm-hmm. Does he still have no eyes? And I would tell the story through to the resurrection. Don't stop. Like, tell the story through. Right. And, you know, the story of Jesus. And I, I pointed out the cruciform way that Samson died and, you know, Jesus on the cross and all these callbacks and, and things like that. But you want to make it real. You want to make it real. Because these kids you're raising are real and they live in the real world and they are going to have to make real character choices and real character decisions in their own lives. When you reduce the story of David from the morals of David's life down to moralism, it makes it very difficult when you get into his failure and murder with Bathsheba and Uriah. That's when you get the kids saying, hey, my parents never told me about real problems. We just talked about little self-esteem lunchroom problems. Yeah, and you made him seem so great. Yeah, and look at him. Why didn't you tell me about what a big failure he was? You know, he was a hypocrite. Like, yeah, he was. He was a total hypocrite. You have to tell... In order to tell the truth about the gospel and about grace and about the need for a Messiah and the need for forgiveness, you have to tell the whole story. Yeah. One of my, my sons was recently in an argument with a fella down in Southern Idaho, actually, who was just, who was maintaining that their forgiveness of sins is a stupid concept. Like, it's just stupid because it's fundamentally unjust because people can do worse things and get forgiven and go to heaven and people can do little petty things and go to hell. And that is actually like, that's the objection. And my son was well equipped for that conversation and had it and really enjoyed it, really enjoyed the conversation. But when people kick the tires on the doctrines of the church, you know, on the historic, on the historic orthodoxy, they did, they don't mince words and they attack and they attack on shellfish and polyester. And you need to know the narrative of the old Testament. You need to know how that, yeah. Like, You need to know the role of yeast in the Old Testament and the role of yeast in the New Testament in order to answer that question. You need to know the whole story. So Big issues, slavery, genocide, those are the things that your kids are going to be challenged on as high schoolers, if not not before. Yeah, and if you sweep those things under the couch and just focus on peer pressure or on the the scary pickle that was faced down, they're going to be ill-equipped. They won't know the narrative. And incidentally, most of these answers are all narratival answers. So when you get into it and you start talking mm. about why was it okay for Tamar, you know, I mentioned this in an earlier episode, you know, my, my fifth grade daughter asking me, yeah. why is it okay for Tamar to seduce Judah? Why was it okay? That's not okay. It's awful. And I was like, no, but let's like, we have to actually look at the whole story, the entire story, the nature, the importance of that heir, the importance of that heir from the line of Judah, the fact that Judah was trying to steal all of her property that was her husband's, and cut off her property rights, she was being robbed. And she was being robbed because of the nature of that society and the laws around birth and inheritance and everything else. She was owed an heir of the line of Judah in order to keep her property at all, and an heir in the line of Judah in order for there to be a Messiah downstream. Yeah. So that all of us have forgiveness. Yeah. Including her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like this is, and Esther is the same way. If you look closely at the story of Esther, it's intense. That's an, that's oh. an, that's an intense story. Yeah. And, and we want to just kind of, you know, gloss over it. So I think the, my objection to VeggieTales 
and not just specifically VeggieTales, but to evangelical adaptations. Yeah, to yeah. any evangelical adaptation that moves towards the removal of the protein. <laughs> you know, it's like let's make it, let's let's make this you know mushy peas for baby um, is really unhelpful. I think it's extremely counteractive, counterproductive. I think it it reduces the respect that kids, subconsciously the kids have for the stories of scripture. Mm-hmm. It does not make them think of those stories as they age like gladiator. It for sure doesn't make you want to sing psalms. No. You know, you know, the idea, understanding David's failure when he says, create in me a clean heart, oh right. God. The idea that, well, was da- what did David do? You know, oh, he was a little bit mean to Uriah the tomato or I've, I, I have all my veggie tales credibility. <laughs> yeah, he murdered one of his most, most faithful men, stole his wife, and it was horrible. It was yep. all the way horrible. And that fault line was all the way through to the end of his kingdom. Yeah. And split. Yeah, he destroyed his, his kingdom. kingdom as a result. Right. His son died from that union, resulted in that death. Yep. He was a terrible father. You know, like there's a lot of things that happened there that just have to be looked at and have to be addressed. So this question of morals versus moralism, I think, came from one of our illustrators, Jessica Lynn Evans, who's who's yeah. she's asking, what do I do or how do I avoid I don't want to be moralistic in my storytelling, but I am writing stories for kids. Right. So I guess what you're saying is you can't take something that is great and tell it for chil- children, but it's completely fine or not that, I guess that's the wrong way. What, what are we saying when it comes to what are if illustrators- we're to, If we're talking to writers and illustrators as opposed to consumers, yeah, you want to deliver stories to your readers, your young readers that are as honest as possible about the entire thing. Now, you want to consider their frame. You don't want to try to give them nightmares. Because you, you could lie to them as well that way. You could terrify them when they shouldn't be terrified. You know, you can, if you misframe it, you're trying to reduce and adapt a story for a, little young, for a young mind and a young imagination. And you want it to have the same effect on them and their frame level that it should be having on an adult, unvarnished. Hmm. You know, it's like, that's the goal. But we don't just do this for kids. We can say we just do it for kids. We don't. We do it for adults too. You know, I've heard otherwise good pastors say things like one of the biggest mistakes that Christians make is they look to the Old Testament stories to try to guide their own decision-making. They're just stories that don't mean anything. They're just, it's just history that happened. It's not, Hmm. there's nothing for you to, there's no moral for you to distill from it. Now I can agree with some of that. Stop going through these stories, looking for a little vitamin, a little distilled vitamin. Yeah. Who's the Goliath in my life this morning? Yeah. But be, be fed by the whole thing. Yeah. Be fed by the whole thing, be inspired by the whole thing, be strengthened by the entire thing. Tell the whole story. So when I'm trying to tell a Bible story, I'm trying to tell a story that is as honest as I can. I want it to be truthful to the core, but in and fully enfleshed. I'm always looking to add, not reduce. I'm looking at the danger of reduction is is really what's a very slippery slope. As soon as you get into reduction of these stories, then you, you end up distilling towards a moral or you end up boiling, boiling it down to some kind of cream of wheat instead of that big porterhouse steak. Yeah. So when I, like the example I gave of telling my kids the story of Samson, I was looking to add, I was jumping thousands of years and adding the resurrection. It was like, I was, I was going that far. With Goliath, I actually was talking about the defilement of Goliath, like how, how angry God was and the trash talking of David like followed it all the way through the way in which Goliath's body would be composted. Like it was, he was going to be distributed 
scattered and distributed between beasts and composted that way. He was not going to get a tomb. He was not going to get a burial. It's like, yeah, like I've followed it through, like push it, you know, all the way, all the way through. But then you have the other thing is add the detail of like how tall was Saul? Mm-hmm. How big was he? He was the Israelites giant. Why didn't he go out? Like they sent, instead of sending their right. giant and like the fact that the adding the detail of Saul's height and how he was, you know. A head taller. Yeah, he's a head taller other. than everybody and he was chickening out. And then he offered David his armor. So, he offered David the armor of a giant as this little shepherd. Yeah. And he refuses the armor of giants yeah, and to I'm, go out. And I'm sure you've heard that before, but the idea that I've heard it described, David doesn't say, hey, this armor's too big for me. I can't wear it. I'm just a yeah. little boy. It's, I think the Hebrew is he, this armor's untested. Which yeah, is a, which so is, insulting. Which is a shot at Saul. This armor yeah. hasn't been used. It might have weaknesses. Yeah. <laughs> I can't trust this because it's a, this is armor for a show poodle. I right. mean, this is like, this yeah. is, this is show armor. So he, he slights the king, mm-hmm. refuses to wear the armor of an Israeli giant and walks out against the Philistine giant with just five smooth stones. Why five? I, I don't know. There's gotta you be know. a reason. But there's five. And there's something there. There's some callback. There's some connection that's cool. It's the Pentateuch, says, you know, a rabbi, whatever. I don't know. I mean, like the symbolism of five, as I, I'm unsure. But he also, David was strong enough to use Goliath's sword. And it was important right. that Goliath's sword got used on Goliath, you know, very Haman. And then that was David's weapon when he was running from Saul because he got it from the priests. Yeah. So that, as that was an important. So David was beefy. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't a little precious moments kid. He was a, yeah, he was a beefy I mean, he, individual. He, even, he wasn't even a kid at that point, right? Yeah. Uh, we all think he was like a 12-year-old heading out there. He's a little he, redhead. No, he was ripping. <laughs> he said he'd ripped apart a lion, I think, with his hands. <laughs> he'd, already, and, he'd, he'd shown some promise, yeah. shall we say. <laughs> so, David had shown some promise. So, whenever I'm telling a story, I'm actually, frequently, especially to kids, I'm looking to add. I'm looking to find the other details that, that reflect on the whole thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. I'm looking to tell the story with expansion. You know, so I'm in my adaptation, I'm pulling from other parts of scripture. I'm pulling other references, whether it's the you know, cruciform shape of Christ's passion to the cruciform shape of Samson's death. You know, I'm looking to those things. I'm jumping around and I'm expanding. I'm not trying to reduce, reduce, reduce to a lesson. I'm never trying to reduce to a lesson. I'm trying to get my kids to see the moment and to see the, the whole moment and the whole, the whole narratival import of the moment accurately and honestly and to yeah. feel it. I want them to feel it like it was real and I want to make it as real as possible. So, the, uh, the most important lesson I get out of any Bible story is this is real. This is real. This really happens. This is really the way God interacts with his people in history. Yeah, Second this Timothy 3.16. This was real. All God breathed. That's yeah, straight out of God's mouth. This is real. So, I never am looking for, um, I mean, there's, there's big picture lessons in the, in the stories, like have faith, you know, like believe, trust God, fear no man, those things. But I'm never trying to boil or reduce a story down to that lesson ever. Into pablum. Yep. I'm, yeah, I'm always trying to magnify and expand. And so, in the telling of it, it brings with it a sense of reality. It brings a visceral reaction and it makes people receive it as a real thing as a historical thing. It's the same technique you'd use telling any historical story. You know, if you're going to try to tell the story of Martin Luther, you're going to try to tell the story of Augustine, you want to try to make him real. The first thing you have to do is make the characters three-dimensional, make them real. And so, 
I think this is a problem at the adult level, even more than the child level. Hmm. So the child level, it's kind of obvious, but we do this as adults as well. We read, you know, four verses of the Bible and try to get a lesson and move on because that was today's reading or something. We don't try to comprehend the entire narrative. You know, we don't try to, we don't try to see. We don't read about, you know, in Genesis 6, we don't read about the mighty men and then we jump forward to the reference to Christ announcing his victory in the grave to the spirits sinned in the time of Noah. We don't hopscotch around and pull stuff together unless we leave that to seminarians and they tend to be a little more academic and arcane in their approach and the things they're looking for. So narratively, I'm always looking to expand, always looking to do callbacks, echoes, foreshadowing. I'm trying to bring in the the prophetic elements of stories. I'm trying to bring in the fulfillment aspect of stories. I'm trying to bring in the whole. So, and and it will go extra biblical too. So the story of the ram in the thicket, it's like, okay, well, a ram on its hind legs with its horns tangled in a thicket was a symbol of fertility in Ur. So when Abraham saw that, he would have recognized it. It was like, it was actually a pagan symbol. It's like, well, was it pagan? I don't know. Because here's the other weird detail is that Abraham tithes, you know? So, you know, it's like, so later on, you know, in his, well, actually earlier in his story, we, we see uh, him tithing. You know, we have a faithful priest of what religion? <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Yeah. Like, well, just the legacy of the Adamic religion. I mean, this is just this, still the worship of God, but we see Abraham tithing to somebody before the Jews are even a people. And it's one of those things that you actually see every now and then Christians are, they, they struggle in, in how to view Judaism in the, in the narrative. But because they think of it as like the older, the first one, it's like, it's, it's not. There was the worship of God goes all the way back to the garden. And so between the garden and Abraham, there was a fair amount of time. Yeah. And, and God was being worshiped. And there was idolatry and unfaithful worship, and there was faithful worship as well. That's why we have Melchizedek. Yeah. And so there's, there's Melchizedek. And we have reference to Melchizedek in the life of Christ, too. You know, it's. That's why Christ could be of the line of Judah and still a priest rather than coming from the Levi, it's because he's in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, not, exactly. Not a. So there's, there's a lot of complexity to the whole, and you want to try to expand and bring in as much as you can of the reflections and the artistic literary pieces that make you see the entire thing and see it yeah. as real and see it as highly ordered and see the artistry. So if you can see the intentionality, you can see the artistry and you can see the reality of it, then you're telling a successful story. Yeah. Even if you don't successfully motivate a kid to resist the temptation to sneak a bite of somebody's applesauce at school when his mom had clearly said, no apples for you. <laughs> yeah. Even if you have a kid who fails in some stupid trivial thing, it's, it's far more important to me that my kids get big narrative pictures than that they get little moral lessons. Good. And we're not saying that you can't take the opportunity to apply the Bible to your three-year-old yes, in yes, a please, simple do way. It. Do it. <laughs> Obviously, that's but great. You don't, but you don't need the narratives for that, incidentally. You just say, you know, like, obey your parents. Yeah. Okay. So, another example, the Jonah one. If you reduce the story of Jonah to second chances, which is, I think, what I've seen some adaptations do. Everybody loves a second chance. Right. But that's a silly way of looking at it. You're t- this is a story of a repentance. 
yeah. from Nineveh, Jonah, everybody, and and just obedience. It's also it's also the story of somebody who hates the doctrine of forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Speaking of forgiveness is unjust, is literally yeah. like the Southern Idaho friend of your yep. sons. That is what Jonah says. And and you, so you're right. You don't you you go to your kid and you don't need to say, "Hey, you get a second chance at this because the story of Jonah." <laughs> Instead, you can say, "Hey, try again." You don't need to say put Jonah on it or you can say forgiveness is key and important. Yeah. And go into the And you the can story also say Jonah. Don't disobey God and don't run, you moron. <laughs> Stop running. You're going to get eaten by a big fish. Like it's just like is that the moral? Yeah. I mean don't run from God, obey God, fear God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see Peter struggle with that too. And of course, Peter bar Jonah struggles with the will of God. You right. know, like the two people famous in scripture who say no, Lord. Or Jonah, Peter, mm. you know, like, and I can admire that honestly. Like, that's, and I think we're supposed to. Like, that's some, that's some backbone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they both lose out. They both repent as they ought to, and it takes a different, you know, varying degrees of of uh, rebuke for yeah. that to happen. But that strength, you know, that that is that strength is incredible. Yeah, I mean, think about Jonah as one of the the most successful prophet. If you think in terms of sheer number yeah. of converted people. It shows up and just converts Nineveh, which was a horrible place. Right. Speaking of scary Eastern. And then he sulks <laughs> about it. He's still, it's just, yeah. it's really funny. It's like, it's not an unwillingness to see, an unwillingness to see repentance in our enemies. And incidentally, there's a moral you can talk about. You know, you can talk about to your kids as well. Like, okay, so who do you, like, who hates us the most? Who, who are the mm-hmm. enemy? And can you pray for them? Can you bless those who persecute you? Can right. are you capable of wanting their destruction to come through repentance and through them becoming your brothers and sisters? Right, because we that's that's the thing that Jonah couldn't handle. Right, the, these people who had put fish hooks in the prisoners of all the Israelites and led yeah. them off into captivity and killed everybody. Yeah, he was supposed to say, "Hey, I forgive you." Because God does. And he was like, God might, but I don't. <laughs> was, and I will be on a, the other side of the Mediterranean by this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, can you look at God's enemies and your enemies as a result and, and want them to be made your friends? Can you want them to be made your brothers and sisters? And that's, what well, that is immoral. Yeah. Uh, it's less about second chances and more about subordinating your own emotional loyalties to the loves and hates of God. Yeah. Can you hate those that God hates and love those that God loves? And that's, you know, that's what we're called to do. Okay. So One, there, we boiled something down. Oh, we, we did. did it. We simmered well, it right down well, to the vegetable. I, I was about to sling it back at you because okay. I have watched at least one Hello Ninja episode where the takeaway is work together. Don't oh, yeah. work separately. So, so I think that's maybe where we can go now because you've made a lot of kids episodes that yeah. have done very well. Yeah. We have 40 little ninja cartoon episodes on Netflix. and. They would ask us, what's the takeaway? What's the lesson mm. from each episode? Which was kind of surprising to me mm. at first. It was an easy, it was an easy uh, shift mentally because every character has to grow in a narrative. There's always a, a character beat. You know, it's like, stop. Sometimes you need help. <laughs> you know, like these yeah. are a kid who's stubborn, a kid who's self-reliant. You, every narrative has an arc in which a, a character grows. And so they, they just wanted that in each episode, which is great. And so you'd have to learn to not be self-reliant or learn to not be competitive, like team up instead of, you know, yeah. warring with each other, stronger together. They're less, they're not reductionist morals so much as they are just 
character, character journey in 10 Char- minutes yeah. in 10 minutes yeah. yeah yeah exactly so you have 10 to 12 minutes and your character's got to start somewhere and end somewhere else otherwise it's a bad story yeah going there's back an ex- to previous yeah. episodes yeah know? there's an external there's an external task you know external obstacle and then there's going to be an internal discovery you know an internal lesson that you know that moves the character towards further towards maturity there you go so it was very fun very very fun to make uh, a blast and I'm grateful that they weren't Bible stories. They're just backyard adventures because, yeah. you know, it is, it is tough when you, when you tell a story from the Bible and then people immediately say, well, what about that part of the lesson? You left out that part or you left out this part because you added this gritty detail, you know, instead. I think, honestly, the danger of lessons, and I'll just end, I'll just end with this, is that they feel like lessons and not like reality. They feel less like God working in history and more like uh, a worksheet, you know, in class. And if your kids can get one thing, if you can give them one thing from all your Bible stories, from their action Bible, from everything else, everything else they might read or watch, if you give them a sense that this is real, that this happened, that Moses's staff turning into a serpent was as real as, you know, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly in the backyard. Like that, that happened. These stories happened. These are real. Uh, and knowing that these are tellings of real stories. So you're, there was a lot more that happened that got left out. You know, there's a lot of aspects to the scene that uh, was omitted because it can't all be, you know, logged and detailed. But the, these beats are, are beats from history. I think that's the single biggest gift you can give your kids New Testament, Old Testament, the whole thing. Like this is, you know, this is true. This is stuff that really happened and feel it in your bones. Uh, you want them to feel it in their bones the way you tell it to them. And they, sh- they should be able to feel it with even more potency than they feel Lord of the Rings. But um, sadly, because of the way we reduce a lot of our Bible storytelling, our fiction packs more of a punch than our uh, historical nonfiction. Shall or we say. our kids' Bibles, kids' shows. Yep. The other thing is, if people get really scared when I talk about the myth, the mythology of the Old Testament or things like that, that just because something's mythology doesn't mean it's not true. But we do have a mythology. We do have, you know, from the garden on through, you know, passing through the flood, everything else, with Noah floating across the top, with Israel marching through the trough, all of that is mythology. And it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it can be history, it can be mythology. And it can be really potent in a full telling, even for little small minds, small minds, small imaginations. Amen to that. So just say no to stir fry when it comes to uh, Bible stories. The end. Peace out. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Stories or Soul Food podcast. If you're now looking for picture books that would be good to give that deal with Bible stories, I want to recommend Indy Wilson's Old Stories. These three books include The Dragon in the Garden, In the Time of Noah, and The Sword of Abram. The Old Stories series are designed to help children and adults reimagine biblical stories, seeing things they have never seen before. You can find the Old Stories today at canonpress.com. <laughs>